If you would pray with me before we open God's word together, Lord, we thank you uh, for the truth of the words that we've just sung together, that you are near to us, that we uh, have direct access to you because of what Jesus has done. And all we can say is, is thank you uh, for making a way that we can be in your presence. We thank you for being in this place. We thank you because of what you've done for us through Jesus. You've given us the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we pray this morning that as we open your word, that you would lead and you would guide and you would teach us. Uh, we just confess each week as we come before you that we cannot do this on our own. We would be hopelessly lost without you. And so we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds as we open your word together, that the Holy Spirit would come, that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, that you would be the one that takes your uh, life changing, life giving word and apply it to our hearts and our minds this morning and that we would see you more clearly, that we would be changed from coming into contact with the living God of the universe. We thank you. We pray that your name would be magnified, that we would make much of you this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus precious name. Amen. Uh, I, want, I want to begin with just a question to you this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 27 that Mike read to us just a minute ago. Before we do, I just want to set our, our time with a question. I want you to think about this a little bit. What gives you uh, the greatest sense of validation in your life? I was to ask that question to you. Maybe you've thought about that before. Maybe you haven't. Or, or maybe another way to say it is what gives you the greatest dose of self-worth? In your life, what is it that you kind of lean on that you go to? Maybe you haven't thought of that question before. Maybe you have. Uh, maybe you've spent time thinking about that. If you haven't, I want you just to think about the ways in which uh, we often introduce ourselves or talk about ourselves. Uh, if you meet somebody new, uh, if you and I were to go to lunch and, and I didn't know you and we sit down together and I say, tell me about yourself. How would you do that? Where would you start? What would be the things that you would use to describe yourself? Or sometimes when we meet new people, we do that. We introduce ourselves and they say, OK, well, what do you do or, or who are you or, or what are you about or however you uh, phrase that question? How would you answer that? Because when you start to think about your answer, it starts to go to some of those things that we often think of being very important about ourselves, where we get our self-worth. The way we describe ourselves kind of reveals our heart and what's going on there. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second, if you haven't before. How would you introduce yourself? What would you say? And if the truth is, most of us start with what we think are our good qualities or, or the things that we're uh, most proud of. Or, or maybe it's our, our vocation uh, or our family. Oftentimes, guys in our culture will say, uh, we'll start with our job. Well, what do you do? And you start with your job. Or, or sometimes we'll talk about uh, what gives us great joy. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's our spouse, our children. Hobbies, all sorts of different things in the way that we would describe that. And I think we start with those things that are nearest and dearest to our hearts because we want to be loved and we want to be accepted. We want to put our best foot forward when we talk to people. Well, I'm this or I'm that. And we start to say those things and put those things forward because we want to be uh, told that we're good and we're valuable and we want to be loved. And so we often start to try to put our best foot forward. And so just think about that for just a second, how you would say that and what that looks like. Because the truth is, I think if you think about it for just a minute, all of us want to be loved. All of us want to be accepted. All of us want to be told that we're valuable. 
Uh, it's a great thing to hear from family and friends where they, they tell you they love you or that you're a blessing or you're an encouragement to me. Or those types of words mean a lot to us. In fact, they mean so much to us that sometimes what we'll begin to do is we'll begin to act and put forth a picture of what we think people want so that we will get that in return. We'll start to talk that way. In fact, I think that's why uh, Facebook has become so popular. I can put forth a picture of myself that may be real or not real. Usually I think it's at least at the, at the very least slanted. Um, if it's not, it, all my friends are on vacation like all the time and their kids are always getting awards and everything's perfect from what I can tell. And so we do that because we want people to go, oh, yeah, look at them. That's great. And so we put those things forward because we want to be accepted and we want to be loved and we want to know those things. And so I want you just to think about that picture. I was reading about it this week as I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about just this idea. I read all these articles this week on different things in the way that we go after validation, acceptance. We look for those things in our lives. And what you get is oftentimes is, is most of us, we get that validation from what other people think of us, what they tell us. Pat us on the back and good job and way to go. But what I was reading is, is universally kind of said as I was reading all these different articles and journals and different things. And, and, and what all of them were saying is when we do that, that's a slippery slope that can be really bad. When we're seeking for our validation from other people all the time, we start to change and we, we think what we do, what we think people would want and those kind of things. And that causes problems. And so as I was reading, what I came across, though, was the modern answer to this today is, well, the problem is you don't need to seek your validation from other people. You should get it from yourself. You have to love yourself. And it's all about how you feel about yourself. And that's the way you should do it. As so I read like six or seven articles that said that same thing over and over. And what I saw is there's a little different variation in the way they did it. Some would say you just need to accept yourself just as you are and learn to love yourself and everything will be great. Uh, one article I read, the, the guy put forth, you should uh, love yourself as you are, but then set small attainable goals that you can reach. And as you reach those, that will build your self-esteem and your confidence and you'll love yourself even more. And then yet another one said you should just love yourself right as you are and learn to accept yourself right as you are. And then other people will see that and then they'll love you, which actually goes back to being validated by other people. But that's kind of beside the point. And so which is it? Do we get our sense of self-worth? And validation and love by loving ourselves or what other people think? What's the answer? Oftentimes we probably go through a, 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 a continuum of both and swinging back and forth in different ways. And so as we think about that this morning, I say all that as we begin, we're going to look at a story in Genesis chapter 27. We're also going to look just at a paragraph in chapter 25 as well. But we're going to see in this story as we look at it, this story about two brothers and the ways they're seeking validation in all these different ways, the way they're relying on other people and chasing after it in all these different ways. And what we see here in this story is this is not a modern problem. This is not something that we are dealing with or we've just come up with, but it's a human problem. It's a people problem. And we see it very clearly in this story. Now, this story is significant as we've been working our way through Genesis because who's involved if you've been with us, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. And what we've seen is God giving these promises to fix the issues that are in the world. First, he gives the promise to Adam and Eve, and then he picks it up with Abraham. 
And he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And we've been following that through. Well, what we get to in chapter 27 today is we are now down to Isaac, who is Abraham's son, the son of the promise, the miraculous son that's born to Sarah, Abraham's wife, when she's 90 years old. After being barren her entire life, the son of the promise. And now we're looking at his two sons, Jacob and Esau, his twin sons, Abraham's grandsons, also in the line of the promise. And what we're going to see is they deal with all the same problems that we deal with. They're struggling with all these things in all these different ways. And the truth is they're just as screwed up as our families are. And these are the ones that God spoke into. And I'm going to bring this blessing and I'm going to do this thing in in a kind of twisted, weird way. It's kind of comforting. They're just as messed up as we are. They're looking for all these things in the same way. And so as we look at it, this is the way I want us to think about it this morning. We're going to look at, like I said, the last paragraph of Genesis 25 and then 27. And these are the questions I want us to be thinking about. First and foremost, just kind of setting the scene. Why is it that everyone is seeking this validation? It's not just in this story, but it's us today. It's pretty much everybody we know. Why is that the case? Secondly, I want us to look at our story here. And as it's unfolding, how are they seeking to get that? How are they seeking that approval and that love and that self-worth and that validation right here in what it says? And then we're going to look at how that goes, how that works out for them. Uh, spoiler, if you just heard it read, it's not very good. In fact, it's a mess. And so the last thing we'll consider is how do we actually get it? How does God design that for us? And so let's just think big picture to begin with. Why are we constantly seeking this validation in all things? You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, that our thoughts either excuse or accuse us continually. That says there's this internal thing going on in our life day to day in all these ways and all these different areas that we're constantly uh, either excusing ourselves or accusing ourselves. We feel that tension as we go. Uh, if you go back a chapter before in Romans one, he tells you why. He says, we know clearly who God is and what he's like, and we see it in creation and we see it all around us. And we know that we don't measure up. We know that there's a problem, a disconnect. As we've been working our way through Genesis, we've seen that right at the beginning of Genesis, that God created us to be in relationship with him, for him to be the center of our lives. For us to walk in close communion with him and all things seeking that relationship before all else. And what we see in Genesis three is we as people represented by Adam and Eve decide that we don't actually have to do that. We'll go out on our own. We'll try it in our own way. We'll remove God from the center. And what happens is it creates a void in our life that we cannot fill. God knows this. He's the one that created us and he makes this promise. I'm going to bring one through your seed, Eve, that will fix this issue. It's the same promise that he picks up with Abraham. I'm going to bring one that's going to bring you back into the relationship you were designed for. And it's going to be become it's going to come by what God does. The problem is we feel this in our hearts in our lives day to day. We know this struggle. And instead of relying on God in the way that he has sought to provide that for us, we decide to try to fix it ourselves. We decide to try to pick it up and go, I'm going to fill this void on my own. 
I'm going to do it in all these different ways. And I'm going to seek to bring validation in my life from all these different things. The problem is we are seeking to do something through means that cannot do it. We're seeking to do something in a way that it cannot be done. It's kind of like I think of the illustration of my brother years ago had a spider bite on his arm. Turned out it was a poisonous spider. He got bit. It hurt. He cleaned it off and he put a Band-Aid on it. The poison started to eat away at his arm and it caused all kinds of problems. Luckily, they caught it before it was too late and they went in and dug it all out and all kinds of nasty stuff. But but the truth is, when we seek to fulfill this need for validation in our life through relationships and people and jobs and spouses and kids, it's like putting a Band-Aid on something that's eaten away. It may make it look better. It may even make you feel better for a time, but it can't fix the problem. And yet that's what we seek to do all the time. And so what we see here is this same thing being played out in the lives of Jacob and Esau, the grandsons of Abraham. And so I want you to look at the ways that they seek to do it. And as we look at the ways they seek to do it, culturally, culturally, it may be a little bit obscure to us, but the heart of it's the same as the things we do today. And so look at what happens here with Jacob and Esau. If you don't know the story, the two are born, they're twins. They're sons of Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. Isaac is the son of Abraham and Sarah. And we see them uh, born in chapter 25. And they're twins. Esau being born just a few moments before his brother, Jacob. Jacob comes out gripping the heel of his brother. And it tells us in scripture how they're different. Esau is, uh, as we read just a second ago, he's a hairy man who likes to be outside. He's a hunter. He's his dad's favorite, it tells us in chapter 25, because he goes out and he hunts and he prepares these great meals. And so his dad really loves him better. Jacob's the opposite. He's an inside guy. He doesn't go outside. He's not a hunter. He likes to dwell among the tents. And what we learn about Jacob is he's conniving. He's a cheater. That's actually what his name means. He's a deceiver. And as we read through the story, what we see is that Jacob's actually not very likable at all. It's kind of a sleaze bag. That's kind of how, who he is. And you see this kind of sibling rivalry growing. Twin brothers born minutes apart, but very different. Jacob ends up being his mother's favorite while Esau is his dad's favorite, which causes all kinds of problems. And so we see that start to unfold and we get this snapshot of what it's like, this rivalry at the end of chapter 25. If you want to look there in verse 29 and we have the background here of them kind of fighting over jockeying for position on the birthright. Now, that's a little bit obscure to us because of culture and where we are. But the birthright was of utmost importance in the family life of the day. Because if you were the firstborn male, it meant that you were going to take over. You were going to be head of the clan next. You were going to be the guy in your family. And what we know about Abraham and then Isaac is that God has blessed them immensely with all sorts of material wealth. And so the firstborn stood to inherit the, the bulk of that. And that came with that a position of honor, of dignity. You're the head of this family. And Jacob hated that. 
born just a couple minutes too late or it would have been his. And so what we see here is how he's seeking to get it. And so look at what happens in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And so what you see here is this picture of Jacob stealing it, swindling his brother. This is who Jacob was, always angling for ways to get ahead. And that's what he does. He grabs the birthright from his brother. He takes it from him. He he exploits his weakness in the moment. Esau's kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. That's the way he operates. So he goes, yeah, whatever, I don't need it. And he gives it to him. And so Jacob takes this birthright. And you can read this and you can kind of culturally go, well, so what? Yeah, big deal, birthright, okay, it was important, but what's the big deal here? Jacob desperately is seeking his self-worth through obtaining this birthright. He sees himself as this is who I am and I have to have this and I'm going to get it at all costs, even if it means exploiting my own brother. And so what I want you to consider as you at least think about that is this is a position of honor, of wealth, of dignity, of social standing. In what ways do we do that today? It's usually not over a birthright. But we do this in all sorts of ways today. We get our self-worth and our validation by our position, our job, how much money we make, the car we drive, the house we live in, the spouse we marry, how successful our kids are. We do the exact same thing that Jacob's doing and just we just dress it up a little differently. And we seek our validation in the same ways. And so the first thing you see is he's looking for his validation, this acceptance, love, all by obtaining this birthright. I've got to have this thing. And he gets it. But that's not it. There's a second episode here where he not only goes for that, but culturally he goes to great lengths with his mother to swindle his brother out of the blessing that his father would give. Now, again, that's somewhat obscure to us. You can read that chapter. Mike read it to us just a minute ago. You saw the unfolding of the whole thing. They go to great lengths. This big conspiracy dresses up like his brother, even putting uh, skins on his arms to make him feel hairy like his brother. Goes to all this great lengths to get this blessing. So what's the deal with that? Biblically speaking, the blessing was incredibly profound and important. It was your father speaking these words over you, talking about who you are and what you're like and who you would be and why this is so important. They believed it was binding. It had an element of spiritual discernment. And we can hear that and we can still think it seems a little bit hokey. It's a little bit removed from us and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I want you to think about this for just a second. It's not really far removed from us at all. 
that if we took just a minute and we went around the room, that every single one of us can probably remember something along the way in our life that someone spoke into our life that wounded us deeply. Maybe when you were in grade school, maybe when you were in high school, maybe it was one of your parents, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was somebody that said something that hurt you very deeply. And if we asked, most people could go, yeah, and they could tell you exactly. They could tell you when it happened and who it was and why it hurt them. Or the same is true, and I hope the same is true in your life, that there's been people along the way that have spoken truth and good things that greatly encouraged you. And you remember those. This actually isn't that far removed from us. We know how strong and important words are in our life. When people say those things. In fact, James says that in James chapter 3. He says the tongue is little, but it's powerful. It's like the rudder of a ship. It's like a spark that sets a fire. He says it can be used for great things or it can be used for great harm. And we know that to be true. The idea of this spiritual blessing may be somewhat removed from us, but we know the power of words. And so when you see that Jacob desperately wants this blessing from his father, you can start to understand why. Now, biblically speaking, there's a couple elements that we need to consider. One is there's a spiritual discernment that goes with this. There's a speaking, a blessing onto people that we see throughout Scripture in these ways. That's showing who they are and what they're going to become and how God is going to work in their life. There's a spiritual aspect to this that's powerful. But there's also a very realistic aspect in the terms of binding like a last will and testament. And you get that here in verse 29 as he comes before his father and he says, you'll be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Right? That goes right to the heart of this idea of the firstborn and the blessing that comes with that. And you're going to be head of this tribe and this is what it looks like. And so in some ways, it was a very legal kind of thing of a a last will and testament. And this is now true. And Jacob desperately, desperately wanted these things from his father. And he goes to great lengths to get them. So much so that he's willing to use deception. I was even struck as Mike read that to us just a minute ago. How many times Jacob and his mother lie? How many times they will say over and over, are you really my son Esau? Oh, yes, father. And you see it over and over. He so desperately wants it that he's willing to do it kind of at all costs. And I just want to pose the question, is that true of you in your life in any ways? That you are so desperate for approval and love and acceptance that you'll bend the truth. That you'll put on a false front that people would see that they'll go, oh, what a great guy. Or what a great girl. I would submit to you that Jacob's not that different than any of us. We do the same sorts of things all the time. So my next question as we look at the text is how does this work out? How does this go? When we seek so desperately through our position, through our wealth, through our job, through what society says, through the words of others, how does that work when we put all of it into that? And so look at what happens in verse 30. 
And so Jacob obtains this blessing through deception. And as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob scarcely had gone out of his presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game and you may bless me. And his father, Isaac, said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently. And he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. And yes, he shall be blessed. You see the binding nature of it. I've already given it away. I've already done it and it's already in place. As soon as Esau heard these words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken your blessing. Esau said, is it not rightly named of Jacob? For he has cheated me two times and he's taken away my birthright. And behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Esau's crushed. Isaac shakes violently. What have I done? And I've already done it. And he does give a blessing to Esau, but it's far less than his brother's. In fact, he says, you're actually going to serve your brother now. And this is the way it's going to look. And this is what's going to now happen. And so you get down to the end of the chapter and look at how it unfolds. Now, Esau hated Jacob, verse 41, because of the blessing his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching that I will. And then I will kill my brother, Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And so she sent him and called Jacob, her younger son. And behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now obey my voice, arise and flee. She says, you got to get out of here. He's seeking to now kill you until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what he's done. I will send then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both in one day? Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? How does this turn out? How does it go? I want you to notice that every single person in their story is putting their hope, their sense of validation and approval and something in the story. Rebecca with her son. Isaac with his son. Esau now in his vengeance. Jacob got everything he sought to get from this. And now he has to flee because his brother wants to kill him. And so you see the story unfold all the way through. How does it work out when we seek validation and approval and love and acceptance from all these other ways? It's a disaster. It's a disaster all the way around. You have a brother wanting to murder his own brother. You have a mother distraught over this whole thing. You have Isaac trembling violently because the one that he thought he was going to give the blessing to his favorite no longer has it. You even see it in Rebecca's words. Oh, if my son marries a Hittite woman, my life will be over. 
Where is her hope? In Jacob and her son. Where's her sense of worth and validation through her child? And it's a huge flaming disaster in every way. And so what I want us to consider as we think about that, as we see this story and we see the destruction and all that it lays uh, out there, the wake of putting your hope in all these other things. When we see that, why do we think that we're any different? Why do we think we can grab that on our own by what we do? If I just get this job, then everything will be great. No, it won't. If I just buy this car, it'll all come together. I've tried that like 12 times. It doesn't work. A week after you get it, it's just the car. And we do that over and over and over and we seek it in all these ways. So how do we ever address the problem? How do we ever get past that? Is it we get our validation from people or do we get it from ourselves? Well, the answer's hidden here in this story, and we've been seeing it all the way through Genesis. It's right there in front of us. It's a little bit obscure right here at this point in Genesis, but it's still there. What's the promise that God's given over and over? I'm going to bless the world through your seed, Jacob. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to bring it through your family, but I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to bring it to fruition. And what do they do all along the way? We've talked about over and over that the promise to Abraham is ultimately about the Savior who would come, Jesus, that would come through Abraham's line. But yet all along the way, everybody wants to make it about their kid. Want to make it about Isaac. And then Isaac wants to make it about Esau. And Rebecca wants to make it about Jacob. Jacob will want to make it about Joseph. And on and on it'll go. And they'll seek their validation, their acceptance and their love from all these things. But the problem there is it'll never come from that. And God said it from the very beginning. I am going to bless the world through what I do. And yes, I'm going to use you and allow you to be part of it. But it's going to be what I do. It's not going to be your kid. It's not going to be your job. It's not going to be your car. It's not going to be your spouse. It's not going to be your loved ones. It's only ever going to be Jesus. And that's what he's saying over and over. You're missing it. It's what God's going to do on your behalf. And when we go, no, 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 I'll take it back. I'll earn my way. I'll do it in this way or that way. It doesn't work. You're seeking to do something you can never do. And God continually reminds them, no, 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 I'm going to do this. Abraham, I'm going to do this. Why do you think he waited until uh, Sarah was 90 years old? Because it would take that to drill it into Abraham's mind. It's not what you do. It's what I do. And finally, Abraham trusted him and God counted it to him as righteousness. I will save you by what I do. And we want to continually take it back. And we seek to do it over and over and over again. But here's the good news in this story. 
this week and next week and as we continue to look at Jacob, he's still despicable. Sadly, I wish he got it here. He doesn't get it here. Takes a while. And God continues to pursue him. And he continues to say, I'm going to bless you. And he continues to say, I'm going to use you. And it's not based on how messed up you are. It's based on how faithful I am. And he's going to do it. You read this story and you go, man, Jacob is just a sleazebag. He's despicable. I don't even like him. He's taking advantage of his brother. And you get to the end and what does God do? God says, I'm going to extend my grace to Jacob. I'm going to bless them because I'm a gracious God. And so I want you to hear that. We do the exact same thing as Jacob over and over and over again. And guess what God's like? He's still gracious. He still says, I'm going to bless you even though you don't deserve it. I'm going to lavish my grace upon you even though you try to do it yourself all the time. Right in the middle is the good news that God continues to love us despite all the ways we seek to do it ourselves. It's right there in this story. It's in all of them. All the way down through. Our hope is thankfully, wonderfully, graciously, not what we've done, but what God does for us in Jesus. That's such good news. Because I'm going to wake up tomorrow and want to take it back. I'm going to think I can do this. And God's graciously going to go, no, you can't. But I have. And I've got you. That's why we take communion every week. That's why we come back to this every time we get together. So we say we want to be fluent in the gospel because we need to hear over and over and over again. It's not what we do, but what God's done. Thankfully, wonderfully, it's his graciousness to us. It's going to take a while for Jacob and Rebecca and Esau to understand any of this. But God is so gracious. He waits on him and he continues to do so. And thankfully, he's the same with us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that we seek so many times to make our lives be based on our performance, our things, our position. And you just continue to remind us that you love us far greater than that. That our position is based on what you've done for, for us. That through Jesus we are beloved children of God and it's completely what you've done on our behalf. That you've taken our sin. That you've restored us to that right relationship with you. And it's all you're doing. And all we can say is thank you. I pray that each one of us would stand up today leaving, seeing afresh of what you've done for us. I pray for all those bad voices and all those things and all the condemnation and all the things we've heard that we would see so clearly that you've undone it all. That you love us completely and totally and fully and it's all because of Jesus. And we just simply say thank you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.